Imagine a world with no cold calling. A world where companies don't sell your data to other companies who want to pester you. At G4 Claims, we don't cold call and we don't buy a single lead from data companies. Oh, and if you're due any compensation from your car accident, you pay nothing to us at all. For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today for help the way you want it. Uh, hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. Uh, I am joined by Glaswegian uh, bass guitarist for the Fratellis, Baz Fratelli. Thanks very much for coming on, mate. Thanks for having me. How are you getting on? What's been happening with yourself? Uh, I seem to be busy doing nothing. <laughs> but, um, there's always something to do, isn't there? I think that's very much the same as everyone though, at this moment in time. Yeah, you always think you're going to have, oh, I can get this done, I can get that done. And... Before you know it, you've done nothing again. <laughs> is that a wee social recluse t-shirt you've got on there? Yes. No, that I'm sponsored or endorsed in any way. <laughs> to be fair, it's a fat wee shop. <laughs> Anyone's not been a fat wee shop down, in, wee shop down, down in Glasgow, eh? Right? In Glasgow, eh? They're great now. Actually, I mean, the guy's one of my favourite designers and all the stuff he knocks out. It's just great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I suppose I'm technically sponsored. So <laughs> there you go, <laughs> That's class. So uh, what's been happening with the Fratellis then? Obviously, uh, the new album was due to come out in, in April, was it? Um, March, April, am I making that up? Anyway, <laughs> March, I think it was supposed to come out at the end of March. And the tour was April? Was Sorry? And then the tour was in April? The tour was in April, that was it. Um, but yeah, obviously, the situation just knocked everything knocked everything back which was disappointing because we had a nice nice year planned I mean by by this time we were supposed to have been six weeks in America and back again and over Europe and UK too and all that as well so but I mean everything's well the same as everybody else we're just waiting to get told we can play live again and as soon as we can we'll be out there you know but that is frustrating the dates were October initially weren't they are you thinking that's next year now or um I think, as far as I know, we're still on for October. I think, like everybody else, we've got a, we've got a plan A and a plan B and a plan C, yeah. and whatever way the the people that are running our countries decides which way we can go. That we're we're good to go, man. As soon as they say we can do a gig again, then we'll be out there. But you know, the good thing is, I suppose everybody's in the same boat. Right, exactly. Not good things, <laughs> shit thing, but you know, just the live music in general. But, um, there's going to be a hell of a backlog once it finally does kick in, you know. So that's a slight concern, I suppose. You know, there's going to be so many, so many gigs. You know, people are only going to have much money, stuff like that. That's the sort of thing that's been on my mind surrounding it. So, that's but who knows? Almost like you're trying to prioritise what gigs you want to go to, whereas if you're a bit more spread out, you could, could go to a bit more, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But when, by all accounts, there's going to be gigs seven nights of the week again, and you're going, it's going to be hard for a. It's going to be hard for people to choose, yeah. as you say. You need to prioritise. That's then going to have a knock-on effect for the bands themselves and their ticket sales and whatever. Another thing is a lot of people are going to be skint. You know, a lot of people, have, you know, lost their jobs and whatever. And it's I think it's quite a scary time for uh, the music industry in general. No, without getting, Never 
Yeah. 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 It's like it, it seems I've seen a lot of the stuff online, you know, the let the music play stuff. It's almost like the music yeah. industry and the arts have been totally forgot about during this period by the government as well. Absolutely. I mean, but that's that's no surprise really. But I mean the good thing is, which was quite encouraging, um, was all the stuff that was put in place for road crew and stuff like that, you know, and that was important to us that we could still ensure that our guys that work with us can get paid as well, you know. Yes, so, you know, because right, for the outside looking in, you know, people will see the fratellis as yourself, John, and Mints, but. Realistically, there's a whole crew there. You know, you've got your light guy, your sound guy, your tour manager, your merch person. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we've got uh, we we're a we're a family of nine, you know, mm-hmm. and they're a family, you know, of some of the guys I've been working with since the start, and that's just how it ends up being because you end up spending more time with these guys than you do your own family. So, you know, if we don't work, they don't work. Mm-hmm. And the way it works, you know, the luxury of sick pay and get furloughed and all that. So it was nice when the government announced whatever it is, you know, there's various initiatives and promoters and stuff organised and stuff. So it was just nice to see that these guys were covered a wee bit. But I hope that continues. I hope it's something they constantly look at and refresh as the things move, you know. I, as, I, as you say, it's, it's good and it's also good I've seen, like, you know, bands are kind of doing some online stuff to support their roadies or support their tour managers. Yeah. Doing some merch, merch runs and stuff like that as well. It's been class. There's, no, there's been loads of good stuff. I mean, at the start, there was loads of, um, yeah, there was loads of people doing stuff like that and we've looked into it ourselves. I think we went the route of just, we've done this, the single with PP Arnold. Yeah. So the links to be able to donate to chosen charities and whatever through that and we, we were we were lucky enough to sort of look after our guys on our own and then they get the sort of government help as well so you know but no i did see i think the first person i got first person i seen doing it was frank turner yeah and he done a gig in his living room which he tends to do all the time anyway but in a good way but he, did, he was the first person i saw that this is this is specifically from a road crew and i think he had a target of seven grand and he raised a bit 14 grand or something which is great that people can do that sort of thing right. um, aye, it's, it's been good there's been some real positive things as much as it's been a shit situation there's been some cracking things I mean I've seen obviously your listening party with Tim Burgess as well and uh, Louise oh, for Glasgow yeah. St. Pauli as well it's, there's been some good stuff coming out of a, a shit situation yeah I mean it was I thought it was really encouraging at the start where people were sort of rallying together I, I thought it was, you know, people are like, right, this is what we need to do. Everybody was in the same boat. You know, everybody was locked in the house, so people were going out of their way to do it. I mean, the listening parties have been incredible, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it's just a shame that, I don't know about you, I mean, I, I lived in England and I was something classical recently, but it just looks as if some, it's went back to normal, you know. Yeah. And kind of forget what's going on, but there's still a lot of people sitting furloughed and all the rest of it, so... It looked as if the sort of, I don't want to say community spirit, let's call it country spirit, whatever you want to call it, sort of dipped. Yeah. Um, which was a shame because it looked as if everybody was like, you know, let's, let's go on with this, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And then until the stuff in that is, is, as much as it's a small tokenistic gesture, it's bringing people together that might not see MD throughout the rest of the week now as well, isn't it? Focus standing up those steps, clapping or whatever it's. 
Yeah. I missed the start of that. Sorry, Derek. Even though it's a small tokenistic gesture almost, like even at the start when you had people standing on their doorsteps clapping for the NHS, it's, it's bringing communities together, isn't it, I suppose? In, in a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I moved to the week of lockdown, which is quite stressful. And uh, so then, yeah, I moved into this new area. And um, normally I'm a bit of a hermit, do you know what I mean? I don't talk to anybody, I just keep myself to myself. And because of that, it sort of forced me at the door. And it was like, you know, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can really have a voice on that. So in that way, it was good. And yeah, it was, uh, it did bring people together. And as you say, it was probably the only time some people saw people during the week, you know, with some elderly neighbours up the road. And I know they appreciated it. And that's what I mean by initially when it all started. Felt like everybody was sort of looking out for each other, and then it just seems like it's just all went to shit. You know, no surprise. But, uh, it's almost like you can take two steps forward and three steps back. It's totally, totally. Just... I, uh, you know, the idiots are running the country that they fucking help it much either. You know, but as far as I'm concerned, as soon as well, Cummings done his business, that was it. It was so many people yeah. that had been sticking to it rigidly and strictly. You know, that was. Well, it. Man. If he can do it, then that's me. I'm doing it now. I, I mean, there was people that I know that particularly didn't believe in it. But they're like, no, this is the right thing to do. You know, we'll stay in for the rest of it. Yeah. As soon as that idea took his blind drive or whatever it is that it did, people almost overnight. I mean, my local park across the road was like fucking Nebworth the next day, man, the next weekend. Was yeah, like, <laughs> taking the base out and doing a show. I almost did. There's a little, <laughs> Honestly, there's about 500 people out there. Yeah. Taps off, cans. <laughs> that was the very next weekend. And it, ju- it just, it was quite sad to see. That's it. Once, once you see the government, yeah. you're, you're falling in line. And, yeah. That's it. It's cool. Yeah. It's only got themselves to blame. <laughs> On a more, the, no, let's, let's take it back to the <laughs> early days of the Fratellis. I mean, tell, tell me oh. if I'm wrong and, and correct me where I'm wrong, Baz, but he's kind of broke onto the scene in, in 2005 with your EP. Was it first radio play was Jim Gellertly, I'd imagine? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, that was brilliant. Jim was the first person to sort of pick us up and play us on the radio. So he played Creep Up the Backstairs. And that, that was, I was talking about this to somebody the other day. That was just an, an incredible buzz. You know what I mean? To anybody that's in a band, you know, you hear, you hear your music on the radio for the first time. It's, it's, yeah, it's life changing. And it, it, you know, it is life changing because it eventually did. But, um, yeah, what an incredible buzz! How did you How did you meet John and Mintz then? Because were, were you pals before? Did you get together because you were good musicians? What's the backstory to that? No, man, we were um, we were the sort of best example of putting an ad up in a music shop. Really? Yeah, and yeah I mean, there's been loads of loads of different versions of it over the years. Um, at some point, we just used to, we were doing so much press, we just used to lie. To see if they would check it and print it, and invariably they didn't, you know. So that's why there's all these fucking mad stories to begin with. But no, the, the truth is, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, John put an ad up. Looked to start the bands. I had an ad up, and Mince had an ad up, and we all sort of phoned each other. No way. And uh, as you, luck would you have it, we did, was it in, a, in a music store or in a magazine. I was trying to remember. Yeah, it would have been. I mean, I mean, you know yourself. Cleaning bands, that's what you do, you stick ads up. So, I think at the time it might have been the comics. I'm trying to remember if that was still there up in uh, Bath Street, but it would have been like sound control places like that. But, um, 
as luck would have it, we were the only people that phoned each other. <laughs> and uh, there are some funny stories behind it. I mean, I, I remember, uh, I think I took John's ad down so nobody else could phone. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so maybe, maybe that's uh, uh, when, uh, yeah, so I'd phoned John. Um, Mince <laughs> had a, he didn't want the, the band he was in at the time to know he was looking for a new band. Cheating on them. Aye, so he would not want to tell me this. Mince's name's Gordon, right? Right. Which I still find strange to refer him to as Gordon. But uh, he put Graham on his advert, right? right? So the band wouldn't find out, right? So I think John phoned, phoned him up. And uh, he was like, Mince's dad answered the phone or something. And he's like, hello, it's Graham there. He's like, there's no Graham here. Funding. <laughs> you know, so I think he phoned back and uh, he said, oh, I'm phoning about the band thing or whatever. And it was uh, just one of them palavas, but that's the sort of guy Mince was for the get go. And he created himself a fucking alias. <laughs> and uh, it, it just got weirder and weirder as time went on. But uh, yeah, so that, that's how we started, man. We put, we put adverts up and in music shops and luckily we all sort of came together. What's it like that first time you come together? Is there a wee bit of nervousness? Is it like, oh, I don't know what these guys are going to be like? Are they going to be sound? Are they going to be... There's always that. Um, I mean, I've been playing bands in Glasgow since I was 14, so I was kind of used to it. You're always hoping somebody's going to be cool and no one else. So most importantly, you're going to hope what you're doing is any good, do you know what I mean? Um, but I, I kind of knew, I mean, we, I think we and John would be trading demos. I think we'd been trading demos or whatever um, before we actually met up. Right. So this this first stuff he sent me was incredible. It was really mind-blowing, do you know what I mean? And um, so by the time we get into the studio for the you know first jam or whatever, it wasn't a case of, you, know, you get any songs, you get any songs, we, we knew. It was, it was an album. There was Costello Music Mark One there already, as far as I was concerned. You know what I mean? So it was special. And uh, yeah, Mince was a guitarist originally. Was he? He's yeah. just one. Of his, uh, he's he's Mince is a horribly talented bastard that can pick anything up and play it. So again, because he'd been in that previous band, he's been playing drums all his life. He's a, a phenomenal drummer. You know what I mean? But he, I think he wanted to do something different, and he's a demon guitarist as well so he started he was lead guitar and uh with another guy chris playing drums at the time so we started as a four-piece and we've done two gigs as a four-piece as well where was your first uh, yeah i need to get this right because we, we we said the first gig was O'Henry's, which is now called Across for the horseshoe bar, it's a wee Italian bar. You go downstairs to it. Oh, right, yeah, down that wee lane. No, no, aye. Up the top. Aye. Uh, I know exactly where you mean it's the next door to a carry out shop almost. Probably. Mm-hmm. There's an, an amusement in the corner. Right. There's a strip club entrance, possibly, there as well. There's a horseshoe bar, and then there's a wee bar called O'Henry's, right. which is a downstairs basement. But, and, um, that was where we 
and it's on Wikipedia and stuff where the first gig was. But I think the first gig is a four piece was actually a place called Brockers and it took oh, next to the arches. Uh he's done the arches, but I don't even know if it's still there or whatever. Um it was one of these fucking fifteen bands on on a Tuesday night, yeah. however. But um that was the first show. And then the next night was McCool's in High Street, where uh, I was working at the time as well. Yeah. But we sort of looked at them as the warm up gigs, if you want. Everything was always planned in a, in, a, in a bigger way. So I was like, these are these are the small warm up gigs. And then the first gig was O'Henry's. And then we made a point of putting on our own shows straight away. Because I'd, I'd been playing in bands for years and I was sick to death of the pay to play thing. Yeah, just getting ripped off all the time, right? Aye, so I mean, you know, it's like so you play in a band and you need to sell 50, 40, 50 tickets to your mates on a Tuesday Aye. before you can pay to cover the cost of the PA. And it's bullshit. The same PA's been in the same venue for 20 years, you know? So I, I'd kind of said for the get go, we're not going to do any of that. We'll just put on wearing shows straight away. And uh, I am proud to say we, ne- we never did. Every gig was always our own show, but we, you know, I put the bands on, we hired the, I hired the hall and stuff, and we done the gigs. And uh, it meant you could actually pay the bands that were playing. It might only have been 20 quid in that case of tenants, man, but it was... You'd be buzzing. I'd rather than giving away a few hundred quid to have promoted, wouldn't you? Yeah, I've seen that. That's bullshit, man. That's been happening since the beginning of time, I reckon. And uh, it was really something I felt strongly about. And I was, yeah, I was quite happy that we, we managed to sort it in a way that we we never ever done that, you know. So you moved to a three piece then. How did you get rid of the guitarist and get mints on the drums? Um, what happened? The the drummer left, um, and then we we were looking for another drummer because Mince was Adam and he didn't want to play drums, <laughs> and uh, eventually just went off. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't too impressed with any of the people that turned up to that. I think we tried to four guys or something. But but knowing that he was the incre- it was something that I kinda wanted anyway. Yeah. I heard him playing drums and I knew it was like I was like, why are we auditioning these guys who can't count to four when fucking you're here, you know? And so he was adamant he didn't want to play drums, but uh, thankfully his favourite habit. Or it may have been engineered, can't remember. And his arm was twisted anyway, and he, he got back on the kit. Yeah, and for that moment onwards, man, that's. I remember the first rehearsal was like a the hand playing guitar, and, um, which was incredible. And then I remember the first rehearsal was a three piece. But for me, that's when I was like, right, this is it, man, this is dynamite. And there was no. Um, I'd always kind of wanted a three-piece anyway, because well, at the time there was no amazing three-pieces. And I was thinking a three-piece would get nowhere to hide, you know? You're, you know, there's nobody to hide behind. And I was sort of going for a you know, Nirvana slash Supergrass vibe just right in your face, you know what I mean? And, it was, and that's what we had as soon as we started playing, so. Right away, because it seems like Certainly in the early days and even more recently as well. He's you seem like he's a proper good pals as well as one mate, you know it's which <laughs> can be deceiving. No, no, there was a connection straight away. And um 
it sounds silly to say it, but I just knew. I knew straight away, man, this, this, that band was going to do something. Yeah. And, it, you know, it sounds... It sounds silly to say, but I just knew. I knew how good, I knew how good the songs were. But even and, uh, it's not that silly because you've been playing in bands for a good few years by then. You've probably known, yeah. you know, the, the stuff I've done before this is nowhere near this level. This is something special. It was, but at the time we were still a new band. I hadn't really done any gigs or anything. But I think the difference was that um, I think they had to learn their instrument. Yeah, you know, we were all. I'm not blowing my trumpet, but we're all good at what we did, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so straight away, we were all good players, I reckon. And um, yeah, I just knew. I honestly, honestly, just knew. I was like, this, this is the one that's going to do something, which was good because I kind of decided this was my last crack at it. Because yeah. actually, I was. Um, I remember things. I'd, I'd been travelling at America and came back, and I was like, right, I'm going to have one last. Stab at trying to do a band. I was getting fed up with again Tuesday nights and sleazies with 15 bands on the bill, trying to drag your mates in and all that. So I was going to look to do something that I probably wouldn't have, but that was my plan at the time. I was going to say, if this doesn't work, I'm going to do something else. And then thankfully, it panned out. The first, the first single was it Henrietta? Was it went straight to top 20? Aye, that was a shock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we released the EP first, so yeah, I mean, I always, I always think Keep Out the Back Sales was the first single, which was off the EP, but the first single off the album was was Henrietta. And it was weird because I'd never considered uh, the charts. I, it really wasn't in my orbits when we were putting that together. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking about getting in the charts and all that. And, uh, we released the single. We were doing hundreds of gigs at the time, anyways. Great, great times, man. The, the early gigs. And the manager phoned or whatever one day and he's like, oh, it's number, uh, I can't remember, I think he went in at 11 and ended up at 19 or something. Yes. He said, oh, you're in the charts. And I was like, fucking hell. It's something I hadn't even considered. Then a week later, they're like, you're going on top of the pops. <laughs> I, I literally never considered any of that stuff either, you know, so. I almost feel, Barry, I don't know if this is unfair to say, but I almost feel like you just came in at the very end of this, you know, when getting in the charts was so so much more of a big deal, you know, and, and top of the pops was still yeah. on the telly and, you know, music was almost, it was it was harder to break through then, I think, or harder to get a single or a, or a, a top ten album, you know. It was probably when about the last time of the, yeah, it was before everything went kind of touched up, I suppose. I think we were the last, I always kind of say we were the last crop of bands, I think, that get, when it came to major labels and all that, they get some money thrown at us and we were, we were able to, like, let's do this right, you know? <laughs> But as I said, I hadn't considered chart positions and blah, 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 and this and that and all the rest of it. And um, as, as far as I was concerned, I, I just wanted to sell records and tour and be able to tour the world. Um, that's all I wanted, you know. So, yeah, at the time when it was Top of the Pops and like, Jules Holland and all the rest of it, and all right, I'd maybe had a wee desire to be on Jules Holland. And yeah, I was hoping that one would pan out and it did, you know, but stuff like chart positions and all that and 
that just blew my mind, you know. And um, I think we were the, I think we were the la- we were definitely the last Scottish act on top of the pops. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I might I might need to check that out, but I remember thinking knowing that at the time. I might have to fact check myself there. But, um, Did you get into these places like because it was it was so quick as well. It was almost in the space of a year, almost like, a year. Oh, mental, man. Yeah. Bonkers, especially getting into the BBC at the time. It was the old one in London, the sort of curved building that's I think it's flats or something there. But um, yeah, it was just crazy, you know. Especially the, the like the Jules Holland sets and all that as well. And you grew up watching it, right. you know. All of a sudden, you're standing there. And you realise how fake everything is. Where's the thing coming from? What's he doing? How can I know? <laughs> mere, mere base. No, it's, it's just, I, the whole thing was just bonkers, but he didn't really get a, well, I didn't anyway, he didn't really get a chance to go out of right, this is what's happening. Right, let's do the next bit. He didn't get a chance to process anything. Yeah. It was just, you know, and it was like that for about five years. I think it was only, you know, in the, the time after that that you, you look back and think, fucking hell, we've achieved loads here because it's moving so quickly when you're you're in the midst of it. No, definitely, man. I never, uh, I don't think we had time to anyway, but I, as much as you think you're trying to appreciate it at the time, and I, I was really conscious of trying to keep grounded on it and appreciate everything for what it was. But I don't think we really did, to as you said, to... Um, the band's band split up for a while and stuff, and then you could sit down and go like that. That was that was mental. <laughs> the highlights in those days, then what, what jumps out for you? Obviously, Joe Holland is amazing, especially being a, a big music fan as, as well as a musician. You know, it's, it's the one that everyone. Yeah, likes. I'm doing that. Yeah, um, I think I'd watched it the week before. I can't. I won't say the bands, but um, I'd watched it the week before, and it was the lineup was incredible. And I knew we were going on the next week. I think I think David Gilmore was on it the week before. Maybe Elvis Kid. No, I just made that up. It wasn't Elvis Costello. Whoever it was anyway. I'm pretty sure David Gilmore was there. It was like legends, you know. And um, the f- first time, yes, we'd done it twice. So the first time we went on that scene, the lineup was like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Who's that? Who's that? You know, I wanted some legends. Turns out we were the legends that week. But, um, We'd, we'd done it again when the second album came out and we were on with Robert Plant and Spiritualized. It's amazing. And that that was one of the highlights, man, because I was a big Spiritualized fan and I ended up getting really pally with Doggin and Kev, the guitarist and drummer. We're still really good pals to this day. But um, the highlight of that second time on Joe's Holland was, was fucking Robert Plant done watching us, you know? And when we, he, he was stunning doing his, his three-year-old plans and that's what I seen at the end we finished playing and I'd, I'd make him just try and write me an asset you know uh, and I looked up and Robert Plant was just on that. that's something I'll, oh, I'll never forget that man that was incredible and uh, Joe Holland introduced me to him as well that was quite nice that's that was amazing. one picture and uh, Robert Plant it seems like that was a good experience for you that was a good one. I, I'm a strong believer in that, but sometimes you just have to. I mean, when the hell else are you going to get a chance to speak, meet some pe- certain people, you know? But that one was good. Um, he was doing the album with uh, Alison Krauss, Rising, Rising Stand or Rising Sand. So it was all um, 
T-Bone Burnett was his MD, the band was all these incredible session players and everything. And his bass player was this hotshot upright bass player from America. And uh, he came over to me. It's another thing, this guy who's amazing came out to me and he's like, wow, I love your sound and all that. And um, he says, I've never played electric bass before, but watching you doing that makes me want to play it. No way. And I was just stuff like that. It's just mind one. I mean, these guys, he was a super nice guy. He didn't have to come over and say that. So getting these wee things along the way was all the sort of, you know, all the sort of accolade, if you want that. Didn't need, but it was, that's, that was nice, you know, stuff like that. I almost feel and like then, boys from Scotland coming through sometimes have this, you know, inferiority complex built into them. Is there ever a time where you think, I shouldn't be here, even though that you've, you've earned the right to, you know, there's, there must be time for your yeah. just Probably every, every kick. Um, no, there's certain moments. Um, I mean, there's other ones, you know, playing with Pete Townsend. The Who are my favourite band. They've been my favourite band since I was 12 years old or whatever, you know. And uh, playing with Pete Townsend, playing with Roger Daltrey separately as well, so. Stuff like that, you certainly think, and this is a mistake. Somebody's going to come and take me out of the plug in a minute, you know what I mean? And uh, I'll wake me up. But yeah, stuff, you know, stuff like that happened to you is just absolutely mind blowing. And it was a roller coaster at the time. And when you look back at stuff like that happening, you know, that's incredible. That's not the norm. But the funny thing is, at the time, you're like, I was. Of course, Pete Townsend's going to come on and play going to the Happy Phase in Texas, you know, and we're going to play the Seeker. Of course, Daltrey wants us to play the Seeker with the Royal Albert Hall. That's just what you do. That's not the norm. And it's it's scary when you get to a point where you you think, oh, this is just must be what happens. You know, it, I mean, it happened quickly, but he's, he's deserved it, Larry, you know, wasn't he? <laughs> like, hard work and... I mean, he's, he's no. worked constantly as well. It's not as if he's were sitting about doing nothing. It was hard, hard work. No, I mean, yeah, thanks for saying. I mean, it's it is annoying sometimes when you people you, you read things or whatever, and people are like, oh, it's overnight fucking success. No, that wasn't overnight. It was, you know, it's it just rightly pointed out kindly that it's, it's hard work. Do you know what I mean? But even when you're starting off, it's hard. But I like to think we'd sort of done the groundwork as I said earlier, in other bands. Yeah. So by the time the Fratellis was ready to roll, we kind of didn't start there, we started there a wee bit, you know. Yeah. In my head, that's the way I see it anyway. And then the hard work started with, um, with the touring and all the rest of it, and Grafton, you know. I suppose once so, you get that first album and it goes, what was it, number two in the charts maybe? Number two, number three? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's how do you follow this up and it's, was there ever a worry about that or was because as you say you know the songs at first the first time you heard them for John you knew they were masterpieces here. yeah funnily enough that wasn't the songs that ended up in the album <laughs> really yeah that was um, again I was trying to think about this thing when I was doing the, listen, the listening part of the other day yeah. which incidentally I had loads of amazing facts and funny stories everything lined up for it and I forgot how fast Castello music is <laughs> And fucking all the stuff I'd lined up to say and the pattern and jokes and stories and all that uh, just 
going out the window. You know? yeah. I was literally flying to the seat of my pants trying to keep up with me. That's how it is. But, um, yeah, I forgot the original question. Sorry. <laughs> After such a successful album, are you worrying about the next one or are you thinking uh, we can bash it one just as good as it? No, man, I thought I wasn't being, we weren't being arrogant, but I think you need to believe. You need to believe in yourself, otherwise, how are you going to convince anybody else to, to believe in you, you know? Yeah. And um, we did, but I don't think anybody could have followed the success of Costello music. And I, I certainly don't see the second album as a failure. Not you know, it was a lot of people, again, when you read things over the years, and like, oh, the second album wasn't as big as the first one. I was like, oh, how big was your first fucking album, mate? Do you know what I mean? It was. It still sold, you know. It sold. Uh, got a gold record in my kitchen for here. We stand. You know what I mean? It was a big album, but it, again, it was at the time when music was changing and um, more streaming stuff was just coming into play. And you know, we went around the world another three times because of it and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. The the, the songs were slightly different, and we, but, but by that time, I think we were evolving as a band as well. Which is what a band should do, I think. I, th- I personally think it's quite boring when a band just do the same thing all the time, even if it's a band you love. Yeah. And there is a few bands out there that I've loved for years and still love, but every album sounds the same. Mm-hmm. If that's for them, then fair do But personally, I would rather be in a band that evolves with every album. You take a crack at not doing something wildly different. I always think our albums sound different, but at the end of the day, you know what it says. There's an un- unmistakable totally. formula there, you know, and you know what it says, but, but they're very varied and very different, which is what I think a band should do. That's that's what you're there for. Otherwise, it gets very stale, very quick, and then you get bored playing your own songs, which which does, does happen, you know. Where does it go with the gold discs then? Do you get one each or do you fight over them? Yeah, you get one each. And um, yeah, you need to pay for them. <laughs> yeah, no yeah. That's or somebody else paid. I think the management paid for them. Right. Yeah, awards and stuff like that. They only give you one, which I thought was funny. <laughs> like uh, the Brit Awards, when you go up and you get your awards and all that. Then they give you it, and you go back and take a photo of it, and they fucking take it off you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. If you, want, if you want one, you need to pay 300 quid each or whatever. Do they really? Eh? Yeah. What's that? I imagine it's the same award. I think they've got like four or five on the night. Right. In case of the big band or whatever that comes up in the video, get one each. But you get in the back and you stand in there and take a photo. It's not that. The back. Worked out. Shocking. If you want one, you need to pay for it. That Brit Awards speech was brilliant as well. I always remember that. You know, it was. I thought the it was speech. Aye. Oh, oh. Mad. <laughs> Another mad night, just yeah. chaos. Do you feel that? Uh, do you feel that these things that you you need to behave yourself, or do you think, oh, just let's just be ourselves? I think we were all we were always ourselves. Yeah. Again, something of us proud of. We never pretended to be anything that we weren't. Um, we weren't an uber trendy band for Glasgow. And, uh, we're just three guys who were fucking really good at playing and we're on an incredible wave and we, you know what I mean, and just went for it. And 
my theory at the time and still was, was I owe this to my 16-year-old self. So if I'm in a position where I can stand on a table with a bottle of champagne and watch Oasis, I'm going to do it. Do you know what I mean? So I've made these promises to myself as, as it went along. Okay. And that was the highlight of the Brit Awards night for me. Uh, that was a really special moment. It was... Um, after we got the award, and I was really camped in and had a drink and stuff. I think Oasis were getting their lifetime, or whatever it was, lifetime at achievement or whatever. Yeah, me, me and John were stoning, stoning on the table. That's class. Two, magnum, two magnums of champagne, watching Oasis singing rock and roll stars singing and screaming at the top of our voices. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the moment that you're waiting for, do you know what I mean? And uh, that's one of my happiest memories for that thing, you know. That was a real moment for me, you know. Then all went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> so it's these no. bands, isn't it? These bands that you grow up watching thinking, fuck's sake, they're amazing. And you're in a room with them, mm-hmm. you won an award at the same award show as they're playing it, you know, it's you're part of that now. Yeah. yeah, it was mental. I mean that night particularly, um <laughs> just loads of random shit happened that night. Uh, I think Mince had a piss next to Stephen Tyler for Aerosmith. <laughs> and <laughs> Mince said to him, uh, Stephen Tyler was wearing fucking sparkly pink trousers or something. <laughs> and Mince was like, nice trousers. And Stephen Tyler told me about, nice trousers, you know, just. Stuff, stuff, stuff like that, but these are the things that stick yeah, in your mind. Yeah. Tyler Ferrell Smith, you know, like I said, the Oasis thing, and uh, I'm sure there was other mad stuff that happened that night. I can't quite remember, it's a bit hazy now. Um, <laughs> we went to the Oasis after party, right? which was, you know, there's famous stories about that night where Noel Gallagher was behind the door letting people in and out, so people were turning up. And they'd say to the bouncers, nah, he's not getting in. So I like, we get in that night, so I like to think we're doing something right. right, right. Yeah, but just stuff like that. The whole thing was, as I say, it was chaos in, a, in an amazing way. And it was all going 100 mile an hour, you know, all that stuff. So yeah. you're just holding on for dear life. Yeah. Was it five years or so between the, the, first, the second and the third album? Roughly about five years? Or? Something like that, four or five years. Yeah. I remember thinking at the time we were apart longer than we were together the first time round. But I mean, even that, um, yeah, the very fact that we we got back together was brilliant as well. And um, we got another crack at it, man, another bite of the apple. And um, we've been doing it ever since, you know. Yeah, of course it wasn't as crazy and as mad at the time, but, you know, that... I still earn my, my living playing in a band and touring the world, you know. So, all right, you're not on Jules Holland anymore and fucking drinking champagne, watching Oasis, four and a half tables and stuff. But, we're, you know, we're touring the world, we're a working band and we're, we're still doing it. And that's something I'm very thankful for as well because, you know, a hell of a lot of bands, they come out at the same time of us as us, sorry. You know, can they get, maybe can they, if they're still together, they can they get out of the country. You know, we still go and play in Japan and China and America and we're, we're very lucky, you know. As we said earlier, we put the graft in early on and went to all these places and luckily by the time we get our shit together and get back together, they were all still there, you know, so. 
What's it like being on the yeah. road in America? Three, three Scottish guys and your your six pals that are you know in the in the van with you? Is it unreal? Absolutely, absolutely incredible. And you've been following there. I know that you had the North American tour that you've had to reschedule as well. You know this year. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, we've been lucky. I mean, we've been touring constantly in America. We never cracked it by any means, but it depends on your definition of baking America or whatever. But we can go and play at 2,000 people. That's phenomenal. In America and ro- roll across the States on a tour bus in a big rolling pub with your mates for six weeks. That to me is baking America. You know? oh, I agree. Eh? Whereas other people will be like, oh, you, know, you know, much bigger bands cracked America and all the rest of it. But, you know, as I said, we, we can go and do that and we still can. And it's amazing. I'm, I'm quite romantic about, you know, stuff like that. You know, driving across the desert, watching the sun coming up, listening to tunes. And that that's the moments that I live for when we tour, you know. And uh, it's brilliant. You know, I can't imagine it's always easy, though. I'd imagine there'll be some fallouts. It's, you're totally on each other's hair all the time, isn't it? always is, man. You know, but we've become very good over the years at giving each other the space that we need which was something that was born at a, probably splitting up, I guess. We spent five years together, you know. Oh, we say we, um, you know, we, we worked together, we lived together, we fucking ate together, we travelled together, we didn't get peace with each other, you know. So by the time we get back together, we kind of knew, you know, how we give each other space and that. And you need to learn a formula to that to be able to survive on tour. Because there is times where you just want your, your own space and it's it's hard and a, and a tour bus on a place to go to your bunk, do you know what I mean? Okay. So, yeah, there's different... You find, I guess I guess every band is the same, you find your own way of doing it and what works and that and when you hang out together and when not to and if it's party night, it's party night or if it's cuddling up on the couch evoke some old teasers with your drummer watching a film night is that night do you know what I mean so is it hard to balance are you sometimes like fuck it I'm going for it the night and the other ones are like nah calm yourself guys sometimes <laughs> I, yeah I mean, it's not just me it's everybody else you know it's like some nights somebody's on it and you're like oh, you know, I'll just have one and go to bed <laughs> before you know it you're buying cowboy hats and gas stations at four in the morning <laughs> but again these are all the wee moments that I, that I live for the brilliant man that's, that's what it's all about man. have you ever had any dodgy experiences on the road like uh, vans breaking down in the middle of the desert or anything like that or? oh I've had a couple of deltas yeah. um, particularly in America with a blowout and it's happened a couple of times for the American two buses are huge the tyres fucking as tall as me do you know what I mean one of them blows the bus goes flat do you know what I mean so that happened during the night it was a night that we were all steaming as well and then <laughs> we pulled up on the side of the highway and the driver's like you gaff you know so we were sitting up and another another great moment do you know what I mean we were on a kind of highway set as we held up so we all had to get off or steaming sitting on a highway in America, you know, it's, it was scary at the time, but that ended up being a really nice moment, you know, we're all just sitting having a laugh and stuff like that, and when's, it, when's that going to happen to you, you know, things like that, and we've had vans broken into, we've had all sorts of stuff, yeah, N- nothing too drastic though, sure. um, 
first night in a tour bus in Liverpool, a tour bus get tanned. That was quite scary. You're joking. Yeah. yeah. That's something I'll always remember. So everybody's very excited. Do you think they were the gear that was in it? Or? No, no, it was um, the venue was here, the tour bus was parked there, and there was some student flats above it. Right. And there were skylights in the roof. And it was just pissed up students fucking lobbing bottles in and it smashed the skylight. Mm-hmm. Obviously, something like that happens. You're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're gonna uh, And it was the first, I think it was our first or second night on a on a tour bus proper, you know. That's probably the worst thing that happened, to yeah. be honest. But I know some of that. Were you swamped at the airports coming in? Say again, mate, sorry. Japan, were, you, were you swamped at the airports coming in? You always see these. Uh, videos of yeah, and there's folk there wanting albums signed and photos, and it's mental, but that's just part of it as well. Um, and it still happens, thankfully. Yeah. At, at the time, the first time we went as well, it was um, yeah, people outside the hotel and all that, they were like, how, did, how the fuck did it, how do you know where we are, and stuff like that. But uh, I've learned over the years there's, there's wee things to do, that's how everybody knows where you are because. Clever uh, Japanese fans, they just look in the hotel registers for the, they find out who the tour manager is. Really, eh? Yeah. And they go like, right, he's staying there, the band's staying there. So that's, that's why you see it. Isn't it eh? Not bad. Yeah, you've got to be admired. Yeah, exactly. What's, what's your favourite place to play then? It's, you always hear people say the Barras or Glasgow, but yours have been everywhere. Is, is it really that romantic or is there for you? Would you like yeah. I'll get, yeah. Well, I've got a few favourites that um, you just can't knock the bars, you know. I mean, that's, that's where I grew up going to see bands. I, I used to live beside the bars, you know. I mean, I, I, I lived in a flat, the stage doors there, and I lived in a flat there. Right. Um, I was, again, it's one of these romantic things where I'm going to play the bars one day. And thankfully, we, we have a few times, you know. And there's no atmosphere like it anywhere else it's just something about the building everybody's I mean, I'm assuming you know yourself you've been to the bar and whatever just, people just fucking lose the plot on the way up the stairs as soon as that door opens and the heat hits you you're like, you know what I mean it's just it's amazing you know and it's it's still amazing getting back to watch bands there yeah. it's cool knowing that you've played there if you go back and watch a gig as well it's, that's still thing quite weird and um but that, the atmosphere in that building is fucking incredible, man. And it's right when you see bands, <coughs> excuse me, when you read about bands, you know, what's your favourite thing? You, and they all say the bars. It's for a reason, you know. There's magic in that room, man. And um, there's other great places over the world. Um, the Fillmore, San Francisco's brilliant, legendary venue as well. We've been lucky enough to do that a couple of times. Uh, Webster Hall in New York. There's loads of cool venues in New York, but Webster Hall is one of my favourites. And I, I thought it shut down actually, but I was pleased to find that it managed to get rescued. The government was supposed to be doing it on that tour. Yeah. That's a really special room. That's kind of on a par with the bars as well. That's got a real vibe to it. It's amazing um, to think, though. You know, the venues that you're playing in, in New York are the same size as venues that you're playing in Glasgow. You've got a real loyal fan base across the world. Yeah, it's mental, man. But, I mean, like I said, we put the work in at the time. Yep. And then, of course, we lost people when we split up and all the rest of it. But um, we can consistently play to that sort of amount of people. I mean, as you get across America, you get to smaller places and stuff, and there'll be places where you'll play because it's on the way. Uh-huh. But it's good you can play, you know, 
2,500, 2,000, and the next day you're in Phoenix playing to 300 people. That's close. But I, I quite like that because just, you know, get up and down and keep you on your toes, you know. But we've always been lucky in the, the major cities in the States and Canada as well, you know, we're, we can play to that amount of people and there's great venues in LA as well, the Wilton's Theatre and it's like three and a half thousand, you know. That's that's the wee moments you pinch yourself when you, when you get off the bus and you get in for the sound check. You're like, oof, you see these places, you know. And then you look up the history of who's played there and whatever. And it's moments like that that's unreal, you know. You know, the, the, the song itself, you know, Chelsea Daggers, obviously synonymous to the world over. Everyone knows it, but there must be a wee bit of pride as well in terms of you're obviously a big football fan, but not myself. And it, I feel like when you go to Hamden now, it's a staple at the Scotland games. It's fucking should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll get a weird, weird relationship with that song, but my take on it is anybody that doesn't. If you're in a band and you moan about having a successful song, then you shouldn't be in a fucking band. That's the reason. <laughs> that's why. the aim, isn't it? Yeah, that's what you do. You want to get your music to as many people as possible. And I know it's become a total marmite song over the years. You know, people either love it or fucking hate it. But um, it's it pays my bills, man. People hate it. I, don't, I can't even get into it with hate. Uh, it. No, some people do, man. I mean, yeah. I mean, people panning and stuff and I think it get played to death you know and it's definitely took on a life of its own uh, but still to have a song like was it 15 years later or whatever that can cause that much carnage in clubs or at gigs right. at, at football at fucking rugby right. you know, at, at the darts the places the, That's the right. play, you know I, I ended up going to the <laughs> Fucking Grand Slam darts one night because of it, you know, right. and uh, just weird things. Um, but no, and then especially in America, uh, Chicago Blackhawks adopted it as a goal as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's been going for ages. The ice hockey team, and that happened when we split up actually. So, a it kept kept the old money coming in the bank, which was nice. But by the time we got back together. We had a, a much another higher profile in America still because of that, yeah. and that that's a big reason why um, I'm saying some people don't like the song and that because you know ice hockey in the states is like a religion, yeah. and the Black Hawks kept winning everything for years and pumping everybody else. So I used to worry that we're you're going to alienate. Yeah, we did. We totally did, man. And we, we went to one place. I can't. Uh, can't remember where it was, but we went somewhere and there was some rivalry between the Blackhawks and their team. And the guy, the the guy that owned the venue asked us not to play it that night. No way. And we were, oh, fuck off. Of course we're gonna play it, you know. But he was serious, man. He's like, oh, I think uh, you know, I think you you alienate half half or if not most of the crowd if you play that song. Where would you consider not playing it this evening? That's madness, eh? That, that was a serious request we had once, so that's how I know that it does alienate. Did you play it? Of course we played it. <laughs> we played it first. <laughs> we came out and played it in the first song. But, um, and the crowd were alright, there wasn't bottles flying. It was fine, man. If the bottles flung it, it was much worse than that. <laughs> Believe me. No, I think the reaction that night was there was some people in the crowd that were 
raging, you know. But there's loads of fans there that don't give a shit about hockey, so they were going mental as they do anyway. So right. I always remember that. That was a funny moment. The, the venue manager asking us directly, "You fucking biggest song? I didn't bother. We'll, we'll do something else tonight." Would you say that's uh, that's the ice hockey team then? <laughs> the Blackhawks, yeah, Blackhawks oh. winner. Alright, I've been on the pitch and all that at half time doing the doing the old uh, what charity fucking get the puck in the hang trying not to fall you up on the TV yeah. and meet minced on it again <laughs> mad moments you know um, you get invited it's like doing the half time draw at the football it's that sort of thing you know and um, they invited us to go on the ice and do this celebrity puck challenge or whatever. The, the only ice hockey I'd ever played was on the fucking Mega Drive, do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> yes, I, I didn't know a lot about it, but of course I went along for the buzz and Vince, strangely, was like, I'll, I'll go as well. Normally you wouldn't do these things. So the two of us went, we get the jerseys with Fratelli on the back and all that. Amazing. Uh, we went on at half time. The only thing I was worried about was slipping the arse. Because <laughs> I was like, what if you... 90,000 people in here, you know what I mean? Everybody's just here, but thankfully they're all the wee special carpet. And we're trying to get the, the puck in the air. <laughs> Men's done it. I was shit. I missed. And um, we yeah, get told... You're doing your own as well, the whole crowd are giving it loud. American sports. Proper American sports fans, you know. <laughs> and we get told it was just on... Blackhawks TV, their own TV, and on the screens at, at, at half time, I don't know if it was this. So that's fine, yeah. So we went and had a good night, had a laugh and all that. I think we were in the airport in Chicago the next day, and everybody was like, it was fucking on the telly. It was on national oh, TV. Right. Right. I was doing this first time I turned ice hockey stick in my life, do you know what I mean? Try to get it in the fucking net or the goal, or whatever you call it. So everybody in the airport was like, I see, guys. <laughs> Again, mad, mad moments, but these are what happens. That's amazing. You know, it's it's things that you, you wouldn't even dream about, is it? It's like reaching places and people that are now, you know, so affectionate to you and your songs that you just never thought would happen. No, that's amazing, and that's that's one thing that always. Um, I love the buzz of trying to get as far as you can from home, and knowing that you've still got. A, oh, sorry. When you go somewhere different for the first time, I mean, uh, which again, 15 years later, for us to be able to go to somewhere we haven't played before is still quite a huge thing. Like we only recently started uh, going to China a couple of years ago. Right. I can't see it's been going back anytime soon, but um, we played their first festival, whatever it was, and it was mental. So just experiences like that and knowing that you're. Um, yeah, just knowing that you're so far away from home and your music's connected so much with somebody is is mind blowing. You know, you meet people uh, before gigs and stuff or after gigs, and you get stories of your, you know your music helped you through tough times and all that, which is something you never take for granted because I've I've been there. You know, music's helped me through so many tough times. So if somebody says that to you, you know, it's fucking for the heart, you know, and for people to still be saying that all these years later, man, it's mind-blowing. Phenomenal. Yeah. It really is. And it's, yeah, it's, it's very special. Life must be a bit, a bit different now, Baz, than it was in the early days that you're, you're a father living down south. You've got 
more responsibilities. I'd imagine when you're on the road and when you're recording and touring, it's a bit more relaxed and laid back and you get more commitment. I've got two different hats that I like to wear. <laughs> ah, it's different, but that's very hard as well, trying to balance, you know, trying to balance a family life and all that and do what you do. It's really hard, man. You need, you need to work at it, you know. It's fucking hard being away. It's hard being away for your kids, you know. Yeah. Thankfully, these days, you know, get all manner of things, FaceTime calls and whatever, man. But um, when we started, there wasn't anything like that. Skype was just becoming a thing. Obviously, I didn't have kids then, but try to keep in touch with family. And I remember Skype, and oh, this is great. It's, but it was so shite at the time. He ended up just going, I'll just phone you. And you come back to a three grand bill, do you know what I mean? But <laughs> no. it's happened a few times, you know, just insane phone bills, but it gets a lot easier um, these days to do the tour. And it's just, uh, and to be honest, we, you know, obviously we don't tour as much as, as we used to. So um, it's just in sort of wee bursts, you know, it's not three months straight on the road anymore. The longest whatever away for this five, six weeks, but you know, which is still hard. Yeah. Pardon? Slightly more manageable, but still hard. Aye, totally, man. It's, it's doable, you know. Still hard, but it's it's doable. And then the rest of it, when we do festivals, when indeed festivals are on, uh, I like to call it stag do touring, because <laughs> you go away on a Thursday, play three festivals, and you're back Monday, you know. And to spend your summers doing that, that's... That's amazing, eh? That, it's great, man. Because, again, it does feel... You know, I say it in jest, obviously, but it's like I call it stag do too, and that's what nobody else refers it to that. But it's you can away with your mates for the weekend yeah. and, and styling in a rolling rolling pub, you know, calling into these festivals, and you're back on the Monday, then a couple of days to recover, and back in, you fuck off on the Thursday or the Friday again, you know. So, would you ever take the, like, the festivals or all the time, man? They love it, yeah. Yeah, you know, obviously logistics aside, we we do a lot down here in England, or you know, if it's within a couple of hours, and uh, they they've grown up going to festivals and stuff like that, so they they love it as well. They're very spoiled. Though, if I go, if we go to a festival that we're not playing it, and they maybe not get their pass, like, oh. <laughs> on the backstage, mm. yeah. So it's nice to ground them and say, no, you don't always get fucking. You're into a busted plane, but but yeah, they love it, man. And uh, yeah, it's something something that we, you know, we're all missing. I'm missing playing with them and going there, missing yeah. getting to go as well. It's uh, that's something else. I hope is going to get rectified soon. What's the future hold for for you and the band? Then obviously most things are pushed back till next year, but it looks like it's going to be a busy year and exciting as well. Oh, hopefully the album will come out in October. Yeah, I mean, that's the plan just now, but as I said, we've got, um, uh, we've got like plan A, B, C, D, it just depends when rules change or whatever, depending on when we can do things, but no, it's going to be great, man, the new album's done, it's been done for a while. Um, you happy with it? How's it sounding? Pretty fucking good, yeah, of course I'm going to say that, though, though. it's... Yeah, I'm really pleased with it, man. You know, um, we're trying to build on the. I think with the last album we put out, we we sort of went up, up a wee notch again, and you just need to try and keep building on the momentum. 
which is hard when you've got gaps between just things anyway. Then you get fucking worldwide pandemics thrown into the mix as well. So that possibly put a couple of spanners in the works. But with a lot of cool things planned, man, for this album, you know, we made some changes behind the scenes and management and stuff. And, um, uh, a lot of good, a lot of really cool, exciting shit planned that we had to re retime and stuff to. When it eventually comes out, so I'm, I'm just hoping that all that still comes off as well, because it was shaping up to be a good year. And I just more of the same, just as I've been prattling on a bit, man. Just getting on the bus with your mates and nice. playing your guitar loud and getting paid for it. You know, it's, it's, where it's did the, bad. the album name come from? Half drunk under a full moon. Is it from a certain moment in time or a memory that you've got together? Or? Um, it's just from one of the lyrics. One of the new lyrics on the album. Um, a, there's a song called Half Drunk Under a Film on the album, which yeah. obviously comes from that one. But I wouldn't be put that past John if it came from a different song because he tends to do that and reference right, okay. reference songs, titles, and other songs and all that. It gets a bit confusing. But I mean, that's that's kind of where the album titles come from. We usually. Um, Usually when we're recording it, we'll have a chat about it and stuff and just see what feels what feels right and what feels natural. And if anybody's got a real, you know, a real bean in the bonnet about something like that, I think that's a really strong lyric. That should be a that should be a title or whatever. Yeah. Then again it works the other way with Eyes, um, Eyes Wide, the album before. That was a lyric from a song that didn't fucking make the album. So oh, really? Yeah, we get I think it might have been on a a different edition of the album or something. Yeah. But um, again, I could be totally wrong. But I'm pretty sure that lyric, which we named that album after, was from a song called "Medicine Chains," which was a beautiful, beautiful song that didn't make the album. Uh, it's, it was a B-side or something, or Japanese edition or something. Excellent. Well, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure, Buzz. Thanks so much for your. Your time really appreciate it. And what Thanks for having me. Out on the road, hopefully soon. God knows it probably won't be soon, but hopefully soon. I hope. I'm crossing my fingers. I mean, obviously want it for us as well, but just for I want it for everybody. You know, it's there's so many bands sitting. But what I was thinking about the other day was, can you imagine the volume of music that's currently fucking sitting holding back on the hill? Right. Uh, can you imagine the amount of tunes that people are sitting on just now? I think that's one of the good things to look forward to with us. Yep. There's going to be such a backlog. Of, um, there's also been a lot of shit on the internet, I've noticed as well, because everybody's in the house. But um, I think there's going to be some amazing work coming for people. And it's exciting. So once gigs start to happen and stuff again, it's going to be good, man. We can get back to normal and go on with it. Absolutely. Well, thanks very much, Barry. Really appreciate it. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.